Yes, now to a court case that matters, and you'll probably hear far more of it before long. It's known as the Hong Kong 47, and it got underway this week. The context is the widespread pro-democracy disturbances back in 2018-19 in Hong Kong. They resulted in hundreds of protesters, activists and former opposition lawmakers being arrested and imprisoned there since new national security laws were brought into law in 2020. Some of those people are now part of this so-called 47. Benny Tai, for instance, who was a professor of law at the University of Hong Kong, and pro-democracy advocate Joshua Wong, now 26, who became a prominent activist at the tender age of 14. Twelve of the 47 were elected lawmakers, and they'd often used their presence in the legislature to protest China's encroachment on Hong Kong's autonomy. To tell us about what happened during the first week of the trial and develop our understanding of the proceedings, I'm pleased to welcome James Griffiths. He's been in Hong Kong from 2014 onwards. He's the Asia correspondent for the Canadian newspaper, The Globe and Mail. Welcome to Saturday Extra. Hi, thanks for having me. Explain to us, would you please, exactly what the 47 people have been accused of doing um, so that we can understand it, because it's scheduled to go on for about 90 days, isn't it, this case, these cases? Yes, uh, I mean, and that's, you know, 90 business days and assuming there's no delays or suspensions of the trial. So, you know, this could be going on for months, if not the rest of the year, this trial. Um, the... the all of the defendants have been charged with uh, conspiracy to commit subversion under the national security law. Uh, the prosecutors accused them of trying to subvert state power and ultimately bring down the government uh, through this plan, which was um, kind of centered around a primary election which was held in 2020 for the pro-democracy camp ahead of legislative elections due to take place later that year. Um, Can I just ask you, that term primary election, what do you mean by that? Because that's not a term that Australians are are, are comfortable with, I don't think. The pro-democracy camp here is a collection of various uh, political parties and and activists um, who have, you know, competed in various elections over the years. Um, And and they've always, statistically, they've always won a a majority of the vote. Um, There are various kind of structural reasons that that they didn't get a majority in in the city's legislature. Um, But there is also a degree to which that they compete against each other for for that um, pro-democracy vote. Um, and the idea with this primary was it came off the back of a, um, a local elections in 2019 where the pro-democracy camp absolutely swept the board and won massive majorities. And that's that was in a system that was much more democratic. And the idea was that if they had a primary and they chose oh, candidates see. to stand for the legislature and people were able to vote, the pro-democracy camp were able to pick who they wanted ahead of time, that that would then focus the vote in the main elections and give them a much better chance of winning, which, which is already still a very slim chance because of the structural issues at play, but would give them the best possible chance of winning a majority in the parliament in, in legislative right. elections. So it was, to, it was to pick the best candidates, um, but it was part of a plan, wasn't it? Which, of course, the prosecutors have said in this uh, trial of the 47 uh, was really a, a broader plan designed to bring, um, to undermine the Hong Kong completely and to, to in effect, bring chaos to the whole system. Yeah, so the 
the government regards this plan as, as very sinister and, and the, its its intentions as, as very kind of underhanded and, well, and it would argue illegal. Um, but, you know, from a pre-national security law perspective and when they were drafted, they were drafted by uh, Penny Tai, as you mentioned, who's a very distinguished um, Hong Kong law professor. They were constitutional. Um, quite a, Even so, some pro-government figures have said that this plan was constitutional because it it, it relied on, you know, things within the constitution that if you have a majority in LegCo, in the legislature, you could, say, refuse to endorse a government budget, uh, you could refuse to endorse certain candidates for office, things like that. And then if there's enough things like that, you can get a no confidence vote in the in Hong Kong's leader and you can force the leader to resign. That is within the city's constitution, that is completely legal that they were trying to do. And this was a kind of message to um, the, to voters as, as a way of, you know, take part in this primary, back the pro-democracy candidates, we will use this means to force the government to resign or give us certain concessions related to the 2019 pro-democracy protest movement. And, you know, so this was this was a kind of really big swing to try and get the, uh, the goals of that movement that were not, you know, achieved on the streets. Um. Now, I mean, the case is very important because it involves many of the leading lights, doesn't it, of, of Hong Kong's democratic movement. Have you have you been inside the courtroom? Can you tell us what it's like? Yeah, so I was in court on Monday for the first day of this case. Um, there have been pre-trial hearings uh, in the months leading up to this, but this was the first formal day of the, of the trial. Um, and, and about um, 20 or so defendants were there of, of, the, uh, of the 47. That's because the majority of them have actually already um, pleaded guilty. Um, so the mo- most people who were in court on Monday were the uh, 16 who were continuing to plead not guilty, two who had changed their, their pleas from not from not guilty, too guilty, um, and then a handful of, of observers. So uh, Joshua Wong was there, um, Claudia Mo was there, former former lawmaker. They'd come to kind of watch the trial, even though they've already pled guilty. Um, so it's a bit, but you know, these were very very prominent figures who you know historically we're used to seeing on the streets or even seeing in the legislature. And now we're seeing behind you know behind a glass screen in a dock. Hmm. Can what's the logic? Do you think behind their pleading guilty? Joshua Wong, for instance, he's pleaded guilty, hasn't he? Um, shorter jail terms, presumably. Is that the idea? Yeah, it's difficult to tell because the the ability of the defendants and the the people charged in this trial to, to communicate has been very limited. There's been reporting bans um, that are only lifted late last year there's been you know they're very you know they're barred from talking to the press when they are bailed most of them haven't had bail for two years so 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 you know we have to it's pure speculation but the the, the feeling is that you know they you know that the book has been thrown at them they've decided that this isn't necessarily worth fighting may as well plead guilty see if that will result in the lesser sentences this is under the national security law where sentences can can go up to life in prison so you know if you can get as far away from that as possible. There's a good reason to do so. Um, and there also may be a desire to, by pleading guilty, potentially protect some of the other people if you take a, you know, if you plead guilty and take a take responsibility for, for more of this than other people. Oh, so that the in theory, the people who've pleaded not guilty might be considered lesser parties. Exactly. And but again, that's, that's speculation and we still have to wait to see what the, how the prosecution kind of sorts these various defendants because, you know, it will try they, – they've previously said that they will argue that some of them are, um, you know, are kind of more active participants in, in the conspiracy and some of them were just, um, you know, were kind of almost bystanders or were taking part in it, didn't necessarily understand, but they haven't exactly explained 
you know, who fits into what camp. And just to reiterate, as you said, all of these people who've pleaded guilty have been already two years in jail because bail hasn't been granted. Um, so they, we just don't know how much longer they might be in jail, people like Joshua Wong, for instance. No, and and they they did try and stage a, an attempt um, after pleading guilty. There, there was a there was a court case to um, whether they could force the judges to to sentence them before the rest of the trial, and um, but they, that was unsuccessful. And they were told you'll have to wait until the rest of the trial's finished, which, like I said, could take you know at least six months, if not the rest of this year. Um, so it could be a long time before they hear the case. And you know, for some of them, they're potentially facing you know three years in prison. So so they may actually end up serving either the entirety of their time or potentially even more than, more of their time waiting to hear their, their sentence. Mm. Now, the three judges who are hearing the cases have been handpicked by the government. Can you tell us anything about them? Uh, yeah, these, these judges are from a panel of uh, national security judges who are chosen by Hong Kong's leader, John Lee. Um, you know, that, the, the government would argue that is more about um, security and it's more about ensuring that they're not, uh, you know, vulnerable to foreign influence or something like that. Um, you know, critics say this is the government stacking stacking the deck further in its favour by picking judges it knows that are sympathetic. Um, you know, the, the judges are somewhat difficult to read. There were, there was a couple of stern admonishments during the, the hearing on, on Monday um, when one of the judges, you know, told off the, the small audience that were in, in the in the court for laughing at a defendant's kind of joke that they made and kind of say, he, you know, very sternly said this is a solemn occasion. Um, and then he also later threatened to expel one of the defendants for, for constantly speaking up and said that he would make them uh, watch the rest of the case from behind closed doors. So, you know, these are not, these are no-nonsense judges who are, you know, known to be kind of tough in, in how they handle these cases. It is interesting, though, you know, I think this is um, Eurasia Review uh, talked about um, one of the defendants, Lung Kwok Hung, um, said he had nothing to answer for, pleading not guilty. It's not a crime to act against totalitarianism. totalitarianism. Uh, and so, I mean, obviously there's a group of them who are certainly not moderating their language, who see themselves as still continuing in its own way the sorts of uh, protests they had on the streets. No, and and you know, and there was a certain, you know, this is speculation because you're you're reading into people's facial expressions and and how they react to things in court. But there was, you know, there was some eye rolling with from, within the defences, within among the defendants from when they were hearing what the prosecution was saying. Some kind of laughing at it. You know, even one of the defendants on Monday who changed his plea to guilty. You know, he's in doing so. This is Unkin Wai, a former district councillor, in doing so, he said, I, you know, I failed to commit subversion against a totalitarian regime. And he said, you know, so I plead guilty to, to failing to do to do that. Um, so there is a certain degree of defiance. But, you know, it's it's a defiant, it's a very controlled defiance. And most of these people after after these outbursts have to go back and sit in a prison cell. So it's, it's a very kind of limited freedom they have. So look, this is a. I haven't seen anyone write this, but is there any um, license or any ability for these judges to find some of these or sentence people to exile? Which, of course, is not a very modern thing at all. But a lot of the pro-democracy people have already left Hong Kong, and I'm just wondering whether that is some way of dealing with this. Has anybody ever even raised that? 
No, it's, it, and that's not within the, the national security law. That, you know, that there is a good chance, I think, that some of the people, if they're given lower sentences, and especially if they're given three years, which is kind of the minimum sentence, that, that and will you know very promptly be released, given how long this case has taken. You know, I think they would widely be expected to, to leave Hong Kong after that, given you know both given the potential danger of future prosecution and also the degree to which they would be limited here in, in what they could do. You know, there's, they can't run for office. They can't really work as activists anymore. It, you know, being here, I think, would be very limiting. And so I think it wouldn't be a surprise if they left, as many of their colleagues already have. Mm. Um, you have written for the Globe and Mail that many of the imprisoned activists have been put through a de-radicalisation programme. Can you tell us about this, please? Yeah, so this is the um, former protesters that were that were arrested after 2019, mostly mostly young people um, who, who engaged in what the government describes as quote black clad violence. Um, so the kind of more more kind of riot tinged um, protests of uh, 2019, um, and that there has been this long standing um, de radicalisation uh, program within prisons that that that. Prisoners can volunteer to take take part, but you know, prisoners, ex-prisoners that I've spoken to have said that there is a certain kind of pressure to that. You know, they're told you'll you'll get a shorter sentence, you'll get you know time off for good behaviour if you take part in this. Um, you know, I've spoken to some ex ex-prisoners who have described it as a pretty heavy-handed propaganda. You know, we should be grateful for what China has done for Hong Kong. Uh, the Brits never gave Hong Kong democracy, so why should why should China? Things like that. Um, and, you know, but when it comes to the actual details of this, um, I, I spent most of last year um, fighting a freedom of information uh, attempt with, with the government. We took it to the ombudsman, who's the highest authority in Hong Kong on this issue, and we ultimately were defeated. And the government argued that releasing these materials that it had shown, you know, convicted felons was, was uh, you know, against national security to, to show that to the public. And basically, in in their explanation of that, they they kind of admitted that they think there would be a backlash if people were to see this material and it would reduce its effectiveness. Mm. Look, does this effectively uh, signal that the national security law fundamentally ends the notion of one country, two systems, and that really things have irrevocably changed in terms of what is available to public protest or to dissent? The Hong Kong government would argue very strongly that that, that one country, two systems is healthy and well. There, the uh, leader, John Lee, is currently travelling around the world promoting Hong Kong again after we've opened up after, you know, over two years of COVID controls. And, you know, this is part of what makes Hong Kong unique and all of that. Um, but it's but it's absolutely true that the the uh, the freedoms that were in place in 1997 and and the, even the political system, the ele- electoral system, has changed dramatically since the passage of the national security law. Not just because of that law, but also because of um, an election law that's passed since then. You know, it's very very difficult now for people to protest, for people to stand for office, and for people to kind of criticise the government in a, in a kind of safe way. So so you know, this is a very different Hong Kong than it was uh, before 2019. Um, And, I mean, in some ways one could say that that was obviously going to be, that was in the purview, wasn't it, of China to do and they don't seem to have um, paid a great price. And I might add, I read that there's an enormous amount of money flowing into Hong Kong. So in in itself it hasn't paid a big price (laughs) except for loss of democracy. Yeah, um, you know, a lot of the kind of business that Hong Kong has lost in recent years is being made up um, through through um, 
you know flows from across the across the border with China. Um, Hong Kong is is like I said, John Lee's at, at, out of the city at the moment. But he's in the Middle East trying to get um, connections there. The the um, security minister even said, I think today, that that oh well, while we're in the Middle East, you know, we're not getting questions about the national security law. People here aren't worried about it, um, which we you know might <laughs> might wonder well what type of uh, governments they have there that aren't concerned about this, but. Um, you know, so, so the, the Hong Kong kind of... So is, all that foreign direct investment, it's really not coming from democratic countries, isn't it? No, and, 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 and there has been kind of a pivot since the national security law and since the process, took, you know, away from engagement with the West. You know, this one, once was, you know, seen as the kind of bridge between China mm. and, and, and mm. the West um, to engagement with, you know, maybe other parts of the world that aren't so concerned about, about these human rights issues. Okay, well, you have quite a job ahead of you. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us right now. Thank you. James Griffiths. He's from the Globe and Mail and he's their Asia correspondent. Well, coming up, top tips on the pick. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.